This is Winning Slowly, taking the long view on technology, religion, ethics, and art. And it's February, and therefore I, Chris Kreitcho, am a little bit sick. But have no fear, because... I'm Stephen Caradini, and I'm not. <laughs> He's going to carry the whole thing, I'm this episode and the next one. really excited about <laughs> life, this topic. I had just, I, things are going smoothly. So Chris has got a little bumpy air, some turbulence. If my voice suddenly sounds like Batman, you'll know why. That's, it's not because he's actually Batman. Or is it? Or Bane, <laughs> thankfully. What do you want from us, my people? Well, we're, yes, we're back. We're we're doing our second book of the Winning Slowly existential existential no you've been reading too many french philosophers steven i know i know spoilers (laughs) spoilers the winning slowly epistemology book and film club hopefully some of you read along that would be wonderful if not we're gonna run through what uh the postmodern condition a report on knowledge by jean-francois leotard is about before we jump into that a couple quick notes on sponsory related things because steven and i are trying to actually act like semi-professional podcasters who've been doing this for over half a decade now what and we are actually keeping our patreon up to date now and oh as gosh. part of that we've been updating our goals because it turns out that whole buy chris a nice microphone thing we did that like four and a half years ago so maybe not so relevant anymore nope also We are updating our tiers so that sponsors of the show actually get more value out of sponsoring the show other than just, hey, you guys are cool, nice. So the $1 tier is as it is and has been. You get listed in the show notes as a sponsor. And ever shall be. Yes, forever. The $5 tier, you get called out as a sponsor on the show, as has been the case. But also, we're going to start posting some research notes to the Patreon account. So as we're reading books, as we have some private arguments about these things, as we decide what we're going to quote and put in our own private notebooks, etc., we'll opt to share some of those things with you. The dumb jokes that I'm not comfortable saying on air, I say in Patreon now. So like now we're going to have like three tiers of dumb jokes, like the dumbest <laughs> jokes that only Chris gets to hear, and then like medium dumb jokes that go on the Patreon, and then like kind of dumb jokes that get into the podcast. (laughs) We also are going to add a nice, fun, we hope interesting to you benefit at the $10 tier, where if you're sponsoring us at that level, we're going to give you an invitation to come be a regular participant in our ongoing medium of communication, Twist, where you'll be able to join a supporters-only thread and come talk with us about the things we're saying on the episode. So we hope that's at least somewhat enticing to some of you out there. To all of those of you who've been sponsoring the show, thanks. And that's it for Administrivia. We probably won't mention any of this again this season, other than our usual outro spiels. The other thing I want to note is that uh, Twist is like Discord, but better. So it, if you've never heard of it before, don't be afraid. It's not like a complicated system, <laughs> the likes of which Chris loves to install. It's actually pretty easy. Hey, now. Hey, now. Hey, you like it? Complicated things. It's not... <laughs> I'm not the first person to notice this. <laughs> I like my complicated things properly simple, though. He stares so off let's into talk the about, void. Let's talk about, about Jonathan Small Leotard. Let's talk about that. Speaking of complicated things that are not simple. Was, well... So this particular book it was widely influential when it appeared in the late 70s and early 80s. And it has been, as we will display over the next two episodes, in some ways incredibly misunderstood and in other ways 
accurately understood. <laughs> so there's parts here that's like, no, don't do that. That's not what it says. And then other times it's like, actually, yeah, that that's pretty that's much what, what it said. says. That's what it says. So at the beginning of the book, the most important thing to know about this is that the setup is incredibly important. And there's some setup that goes on even before the book happens, which you need to understand a little bit about Jürgen Habermas. Right. Jürgen Habermas is a German philosopher, and he is part of the the German school of thought that's roughly called the German idealists. All you philosophy people out there are like, ugh, like, is he really going to try to go through all of German <laughs> philosophy? No, no, I'm not. <laughs> nope. <laughs> but... Habermas is sort of the the last or the latest of the the early nineteenth early twentieth century German philosophers. He's actually still alive, so he kept on philosophizing all the way through the rest of the twentieth century. But the line of thought that he goes through is sort of dedicated to the late nineteenth and early twentieth century. And his main idea is this idea that true rational discourse, the Enlightenment project, is a way forward for getting past the problems of a fracturing culture. So essentially more communication in a rightly ordered and proper way is the way forward to get over some of the problems that were cropping up. I mean, he's German. So all of that is there in the background. The next step is that Jean-Francois Lyotard is French, and the French philosophers think that all the German philosophers are full of bleep. The French philosophers and the German philosophers essentially hate each other, with one exception, which apparently Derrida and Habermas like became best friends, which is super entertaining. <laughs> but methodologically, epistemologically, and even ontologically, the French philosophers and the German philosophers are radically opposed. And the easiest way to understand that is actually to read the postmodern condition. It's the easiest French philosophy to read, in my opinion. I have read other ones. I will not burden you with them in this booklet. <laughs> Suffice it to say, Adorno's Aesthetic Theory is one of the most challenging books I've ever read. Fair. So that's the setup here. This is happening. The other setup that's happening is that we're in the midst of the 70s, which is both the the era of technological uptake. So lots of computers were coming online out of the idea of universities, controlling university systems. We're starting to get computers flowing into industry and into government. And essential to a lot of the background of the book is the fact that systems theory was very much coming into the fore in a lot of these discussions in the same era. And that's one of those things that gets alluded to throughout the book, but is never his direct subject of attack, but it's there as a sort of conversational and dialogue partner throughout. He's sort of ambivalent towards the idea of systems theory because it is neither the, the means nor the end that he's particularly interested in. It just happens to be there. The last thing that you need to know is that the method here is not a traditionally philosophic method. That is an understatement. It is a synthesis of narrative theory, which we'll get to that, and the concept of language games, which is a derivative of, and I do mean a derivative of because it goes in a different direction than the original, but a derivative of J.L. Austin's How to Do Things with Words and 
the later development of, uh, of that thought through another thinker named Searle. So those are the things you need to know in advance, is that this is set up against a backdrop of an ongoing philosophical feud. It's set up in a particular time and place, and it's set up as a joining of two different ways of, of arguing, thinking about language games and thinking about narrative theory. And language games is essentially all of the semantics of how arguments are made, how arguments are rejected, and how arguments are accepted or in what he calls legitimated. So its essential concept is that when people are communicating, they're not necessarily conveying information explicitly. They're participating in a kind of discourse which has rules, and this is why he uses the language of a game, because in a game... If you think about games you've played, whether that's a video game or whether that's a board game or whether that's a card game, there are legitimate and illegitimate moves you can make in the game. So if you're playing a game of cards, you can't just do whatever you want willy-nilly. If you're playing a game of Dungeons & Dragons, you can only cast the spells you have. Games have rules, and things constitute legitimate moves in a game based on the rules of those games. And his argument here based on a bunch of things, including Austin, including Searle, including Wittgenstein, is that language and discourse and communication is effectively a set of games, overlapping and interlocking games. And what he means by this is not that they're not serious and not that they don't matter in some way and not that they're entirely illegitimate in some absolute sense, but rather that the kinds of things you can do in communication depend on the kind of communication you're doing and what the people you're communicating with will accept. So as a prime example of this, and sort of the central one he's concerned with in the book, the games around science and technology, he points to the fact that with science, you have to speak in a particular way. You have to communicate on certain terms and bases. You have to, all of these things in order to be taken serious. These are what constitute, quote unquote, legitimate moves in the game. So if you just show Mm -hmm. up and start babbling about infinite motion machines, this is not an example he gives, but it's one that comes up a lot and that I think is a good example. If you come start talking to a physics professor or you try to submit an article to a journal about an infinite motion machine, which somehow powers itself and is effectively not subject to the laws of thermodynamics, no one will take you seriously. They will ignore you because you are, from the perspective of a practicing physicist, a crank. You are one of those people they get letters from all the time. Now, I'm not here interested in getting into the dynamics around whether that's true or not. The point is that submitting a paper to a journal, even if you follow all the right rules about an infinite motion machine, doesn't follow one of the cardinal rules, which is we know this thing is out of bounds, we're going to dismiss it. So your communication on it can follow all the right quote-unquote forms, but it will be dismissed as an illegitimate move in the game because we don't do infinite motion machines here. And specifically the illegitimate move there is that you've put something together that cannot be proved. And for something to be science, this is one of his core arguments, things have to be provable. Not that they are proved, because you can submit a statement that is theoretically provable, but is not at the the moment proved, and that is a legitimate move. You can also submit a statement that is proved, 
but then people will try to disprove it. That's part of the moves of the game. I'd actually go a step further in this one and say this actually gets into some of the kind of meta game discussion he well, has. I'm going to get because- there. I'm going to get there. But we have to go through one step first, which is his underlying argument, which is where people accurately and inaccurately interpret him, is that he says that essentially because of shifts in culture, there are no universal rules for the game anymore, if there ever were. He mentions offhand that revelation is no longer available. This is not a book critical of religion. It just sort of acknowledges that religion does not have revelation in particular. The appeal, finalized, God exists or God said so, is no longer available in science at the very least. And so his underlying argument is that because of shifts in society, there are no overarching rules of the game that everyone who's playing the game can appeal to. And this is particularly important because that argues against a German philosophy of the totalized life experience. We don't have to get into that right now. But he's not just making this up because of his interpretation of society. It also does other work. And then it will do a second level of work that we'll get to later. But at the base level, the games have all splintered into individual localized games. And he specifically calls out politics, ethics, science, and essentially personal life, although he doesn't mention it, as places where the games exist and they all have different rules. So instead of appealing to this one sense of we have one set of rules for the society and everything is function function driven under those rules, we now have lots of different rules in lots of different situations for lots of different reasons, which makes life more complicated and difficult because in the modern structure, the Enlightenment, Everything was guided by rational reason, theoretically. In the pre-modern context, he argues, whether that's in a pre-industrial society today or a pre-industrial Western society, whatever it may be, in a pre-modern, pre-industrial context, things were governed entirely by narrative. And by narrative, he means here a very specific kind of oral traditional culture. There's an interesting bit of connection here to the kinds of things we talked about in Plato's Plato. Phaedrus in the last couple episodes. He actually mentions Plato once. once. And I was like, oh, there it is. There it is. <laughs> he makes a bunch of very interesting claims around that, which we may circle back to or not later. They're not particularly central. They're more a background of what he thinks nobody does anymore. And yeah. he spends the majority of his time on what he thinks people do, in fact, do now. He particularly sees narrative as an ahistorical kind of thing that is more an ongoing structuring of the life of a given community and its self-understanding by the stories they tell that are are not like what we do with history. And there are ways I think he's right about that and ways I think he's wrong about that. At a basic level, his argument there is that oral narrative history is self-legitimating. The fact that we still tell it means that it's legitimate and it hasn't dropped out of our culture. So it is itself legitimating by its existence. It has no rules. Well, rather, its rules include a kind of self-legitimating in the the framing that the culture gives it. Uh, That's fair. Yes. There are no players in this game. Well, there are. Well, he doesn't call them players. He doesn't call them players, but there are people who are doing the work of acknowledging the narrative and thus the self-legitimating it. Right. But they have not experienced the fracturing, which he describes as typical of a 
modern and especially a postmodern, which he acknowledges, as many people since have failed to do, is just a particular variant of modern thought. It is the natural telos, he thinks, not mm-hmm. in a people consciously aiming at it, but in the this is where it inherently gets you outcome of modern thought. I'm pretty sympathetic to that. Yep. But we'll get there. After looking at that narrative framing, he then looks at all these non-narrative frames. To make this very, very practical, because one of the challenges of this book is that it's very much talking largely in abstractions. And I'm good with that, but it's hard to summarize abstractions on a podcast in 30 minutes for two people. It's not particularly interested in concrete (laughs) details. And when it does do concrete details, they are weird. He picks weird examples. Now, they're not like illegitimate examples. But they're strange. But they're really strange. It would take way too long. We like we could probably read them out loud off the page faster <laughs> than it would take to try to explain the density of air argument, which that's ugh. right, which is also terrible, which we'll get to. So we've kind of summarized these levels of discourse. He argues about whether they're is a universal meta-language that can talk about all these other languages. And he's drawing here on a German-named philosopher, Kurt Gödel. Gödel? Gödel. I always get that wrong because it's Kurt and Gödel. You just... You just... Gödel. Just... just <laughs> girl. I, Batman voice. There we go. I told you, <laughs> listeners. But that was because I was trying to do a German name. So Gödel. there you have it. Gödel had done, along with a number of other philosophers in the early 20th century, a bunch of work on what you can and cannot do with systems of logic. And systems of logic have this inherent limit that they cannot be self-describing. They either are total, which means they can actually talk about everything, in which case they have to include paradoxes, which are violations of logic, or they're valid systems of logic. They have no paradoxes in them. They properly deal with the rules of negation and affirmation. In other words, you can't say true is false in a legitimate system of logic. But in that case, they can't describe themselves, and they can't describe the universe as a whole. He looks at this, and he looks at the way that he understands language games to work and says, this applies generally. If you come up with some formally rational system, that is a system which is actually logically self-consistent, it can't say whether or not it is itself subject to those rules. It can't prove itself. You have to have sets of axioms outside it, and those can't be proven. It is not self-legitimating in the way that a narrative is. Now, for various reasons, he's interested specifically in thinking about how science is or is not self-legitimating. And he's grumpy with a group known as the positivists, who basically thought science, I'm I'm doing them a horrible Just injustice here in this Just summary, but I'm going to do this horrible injustice. They basically thought that science was self-legitimating, and they made a bunch of arguments in that direction. In the 50s, 60s, and on, other philosophers of science basically tore this idea to shreds. But if you want to go look at guys like Karl Popper, they're positivists. They think that science is self-legitimating, that it has certain qualities. And a lot of Leotard's arguments against science are arguments against effectively a Popperian view of science, and specifically around Popper's claims around reproducibility and testability and provability. Part of, as we'll talk about in the next episode, my frustrations with this book are decades before Leotard was writing, All the good philosophers of science said, yeah, this doesn't actually work, and here are all the reasons why, and they basically said everything Leotard says here, but 
with less knock-on things for other effects. Because, prime example, you can't do repeatability experiments with astronomical observational science. It can still be scientific. And so a number of things about Popper's approach and other positivist framings of science had already been knocked down. But this is the kind of thing he's interested in. And despite the fact that it frustrated me in that specific regard, again, as we'll talk about more in our next episode, I think Leotard is actually basically right on the fundamental point that Systems like this aren't self-legitimating, cannot be self-legitimating, because you need these priors. And then you have to say, where do these priors come from? Why should we believe a given set of priors? As he summarizes his claims about science, science has a habit of saying, what is this worth? What is your claim worth? And he says, well, now the question comes to science. What is your, what is this worth, worth? And this is, so there's two moves that he's making here. One is he's he's pointing to an existing body of scientific philosophical inquiry. He doesn't mention it in the text, but in the notes, he mentions a bunch of different scholars that are related to this conversation, at least. And he's saying, this is a thing that exists in science. The way they got here was language games. The types of problems that science encounters, we are encountering in all other areas of life, which means that we're suffering from the same sorts of problems that science is already indicating out in other areas, which is why he feels it's appropriate to move postmodernism, which was a term that had very specialized use before, into these other areas of life, because the types of problems that are indicative and already had been noted as indicative, he's not the first person to mention the word postmodernism, they are, they are spreading. And so his, his big idea is that this has spread. The second move is exactly what Chris said, is this idea of not just what are the rules, but what are the rules for the rules? And he, he summarizes and concludes... One of his summaries. Yes, one of his summaries. He has several here at the end. In the midst of his final three pages where he comes out guns really blasting at Habermas. If you didn't know ahead of time that he was really arguing with Habermas, the last three pages, make sure you really, really know. (laughs) Starting in the copy we'll have linked in the show notes in the midway through the second paragraph on page 66, he writes, consensus has become an outmoded and suspect value. But justice as a value is neither outmoded nor suspect. We must thus arrive at an idea and practice of justice that is not linked to that of consensus. A recognition of the heteromorphous nature of language games is a first step in that direction. This obviously implies a renunciation of terror, which assumes that they are isomorphic and tries to make them so. The second step is the principle that any consensus on the rules defining a game and the, quote, moves, unquote, playable within it must be local. In other words, agreed on by its present players and subject to eventual cancellation. The orientation then favors a multiplicity of finite meta-arguments, by which I mean argumentation that concerns meta-prescriptives and is limited in space and time. Now, slight quibble about just how readable this is, but it is readable by contrast. To be fair, he's already (laughs) described terror. He's already described the isomorphic motion. He's already described. So we're summarizing. You won't understand the bit about isomorphic motion, but it's explained. (laughs) But then this paragraph, this next paragraph that Chris is about to read is the paragraph that people understand appropriately and also misunderstand. 
When people say the postmodern condition, this is the paragraph. This orientation corresponds to the course that the evolution of social interaction is currently taking. Interjection. This is what Stephen was getting at a minute ago when he noted that this is where he's taking and saying, science does these things, everything is doing these things. The temporary contract is in practice supplanting permanent institutions in the professional, emotional, sexual, cultural, family, and international domains, as well as in political affairs. This evolution is, of course, ambiguous. The temporary contract is favored by the system due to its greater flexibility, lower cost, and the creative turmoil of its accompanying motivations. All of these factors contribute to increased operativity, which interjection is his word for performance optimization technical efficiency things we associate with modern technological capitalism yeah in any case there is no question here of proposing a quote pure unquote alternative to the system we all now know as the 1970s come to a close that an attempt at an alternative of that kind would end up resembling the system it was meant to replace We should be happy that the tendency toward the temporary contract is ambiguous. It is not totally subordinated to the goal of the system, yet the system tolerates it. This bears witness to the existence of another goal within the system, knowledge of language games as such, and the decision to assume responsibility for their rules and effects. Their most significant effect is precisely what validates the adoption of rules, the quest for parology. Which is a paradox. It's just a weird translation. So that's what people think of when they think of the postmodern condition. And when they think of postmodernism, they think of the breakdown. It's usually in terms of the breakdown. So a stable contract for a temporary contract. The breakdown of professional, emotional, sexual, cultural, family, and international norms. Now, to the extent that he's arguing about the change from one type of culture to another type of culture, people get this right. He is literally arguing that we do things differently now because of things that have happened. To the extent that people say that postmodernism believes in nothing and wants to like nihilistically devalue everything, that is not what this book says. There are other books that say that, but this is not that one. Right. The last sentence of the book is, this sketches the outline of a politics that would respect both the desire for justice and the desire for the unknown. Leotard is not in camp, there is no justice, everything is power. He looks at power, and we'll talk about this more in the next episode as well, in terms that would be very familiar to students of the figures that we talked about in Alan Jacobs' The Year of Our Lord, 1943. That's right. Very familiar. So he He is not a nihilist. He is not in the Nietzschean camp. Um, He actually mentions Nietzsche at several parts and is Mm -hmm. not – he's not like anti-Nietzsche, but he's not in the camp. Basically, he says Nietzsche was right about the things that he was observing, and here's what comes next. Here's how these things yet further fall out. And so he's actually circling around the end and saying like, okay, after nihilism, what now? And so his essential argument is that modernism is a dead end that ends in unreplicatable nihilism, which is literally the opposite of what it was supposed to do. Right. He wasn't totally wrong. So the analysis here is when you put it in the context of the whole book, it's actually not even that dramatic of a statement. (laughs) No, it's not. When you rip it out of the context and say, like, here's what this guy said about the world— It does look really dramatic. Not going to lie. Looks pretty bad. But in the narrative, and this is one long narrative, it doesn't repeat itself. It just goes from point 
A to point Z in line. Yep. In the narrative, by the time you get here, you're like, well, yeah, duh. <laughs> I, if you accept the argument, which you don't have to, but if you accept the argument, by the time you get here, you're like, well, yeah, that's a natural course of how this would go. Right. The underlying tension then rockets off in a really bizarre direction, which is one of my favorite <laughs> things about this book. Now, Barbara, my wife, noted when I was talking to her about this, she said, well, at least he put it in an appendix. <laughs> <laughs> At least he acknowledged that it got weird. And so the the appendix is, I'm not making this up. This is really in the book, which is going to be my sub, sub line for the entire series, is about avant-garde art. Yep. And how it's really important and necessary. And people like, he of course doesn't name this figure because he wouldn't emerge onto the scene of populist American art for another decade. But Stephen summarized it this way after reading it, and he's not wrong. How terrible Thomas Kincaid is. I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. He's like, pop kitsch art is, it's just subject to the system and it doesn't have hope and blah. So, so the rough outline of the argument, which I'll, I'll sketch, is that avant-garde art is about the unpresentable. It's about things that we cannot understand. It's trying to point at this unknowable other. He literally calls it the unpresentable. Right. And realist art is something that's supposed to make you happy and is supposed to be beautiful and engender good emotions right. in you. And Modern aesthetics, he says, is an aesthetic of the sublime, though a nostalgic one. And this is what he does not like. Right. And the reason he doesn't like it is because he thinks that in a like very postmark sort of way, that if you just like things that are pretty, it's an opiate of the masses. What you really should be doing is doing the hard work of understanding your culture through art that comments on the culture. And in the only way that you can comment on the culture is by commenting on the rules of art. And so this is where the book links up with this weird appendix is that he's saying that art has rules, gallery walls, buying art, these sorts of things, and that the only way you can critique art itself, capital A art, is to break the rules of art, which he comes up with Marcel Duchamp and like everybody who's ever been in art is just like groaning at this point. But he comes up with <laughs> well, Marcel. Let me give you a list of people. He comes up with Marcel Duchamp and he points out that – to develop a consistent understanding of how society is changing, you can't look backwards at what is pretty. You have to look forwards at the art that's commentating on how the rules of the game, which is the rules of art, which are essentially the rules of society, work. And anytime that you have a system that's becoming more and more totalizing, which he starts to compare the German idealist philosophers with technological power systems, which is mm -hmm. unfortunately not wrong, he starts to say, the more that you like pretty, beautiful art, the more that you're just being ensconced in the system, and the more that you are leaning towards unjust totalitarianism. And then he also starts throwing the German philosophers under the bus for being Nazis, and it gets really ugly. Which also... Not unfair. I mean, some of them were, certainly. <laughs> some of them were. Habermas was not. Habermas was no. like, well, I mean, I don't, that's a long story. But <laughs> He concludes the appendix here with, and I quote, The answer is, let us wage a war on totality. Let us be witnesses to the unpresentable. Let us activate the differences and save the honor of the name. Let us wage a war yeah. on totality. <laughs> So just in case you didn't know that he didn't like German philosophy, he does not. Don't read Proust, read Joyce. This is actually what he says. Yeah, actually, that's literally page 80. Don't read <laughs> Proust, read Joyce. 
Flaubert is okay. Flaubert is okay, <laughs> if not entirely sufficient. You know what this means, Chris? Leotard was the original technology, religion, ethics, and art. No! <laughs> No, 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 just no. In fact, I'm going to quote another German of whom I thought a few times when reading this and just say, nine. That's Karl Barth, for those of you not in the know. I'll have a link in the show notes, which explains it. Yeah. Nine. It's not wrong. No. I don't have to like him. The music at the beginning of the episode... Was Tony Sendo by Underground Canopy, aka Blue Stabe and S Fidelity, present Underground Canopy? That might be the most curious musical group title reading we've ever had to do, but it's a really fun track. So we hope you enjoy listening to it. We use it with their permission. Please don't use it without their permission, as always. Also, their record label is based in Paris and Tokyo. So if you're listening to this and you're mad about our interpretation of French philosophers, we apologize. <laughs> Sorry. As we said at the beginning, sponsoring the show got more awesome. You can do that at patreon.com slash winning slowly or cash.me slash dollar sign winning slowly. If you want to reach out to us and complain about our interpretation of French <laughs> philosophers. We welcome this. To we welcome clear. it. Please do. We are still on Facebook. I don't know why. Uh, we're also on Twitter. And you can reach us at uh, hello at winningslowly.org. That's our favorite. That's our favorite, yeah. Uh, You'll get a longer response there, too. Like, we actually think about it. You can also message us on Patreon or whatever. And if you're at the the Patreon tier, then you can talk to us in the supporter thread. As promised, we also want to tell you the next book we'll be reading. So March's book is Ray Kurzweil's The Age of Spiritual Machines. That one should be a much easier read, albeit a longer one. Let's get it's weird. It's also one we're going to disagree with <laughs> even more than this one, I'm Let's pretty sure. Let's get super, super weird. Yes. Yeah. We also have the next few months planned out, and trust us, we're going to try to like tone it down after Kurzweil. Because <laughs> after Kurzweil, we get to read and watch Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park. That'll be April. Now, Stephen says we're going to try to tone it down. Well, I mean, Jurassic Park is a movie about dinosaurs. I mean, the book is probably not about dinosaurs if we really think about it. But the book, the movie is super <laughs> about dinosaurs. about dinosaurs. After Dinosaur Month, however, <laughs> we will read... It's like Shark Week, but better. <laughs> but better. We will read Simone Brown's Dark Matters on the Surveillance of Blackness, which... It's not toning it down. You want a downer. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's going to be challenging is what i'm gonna say yes i think it's exceedingly important i don't know if it's gonna be a downer in the end like i mean it's gonna be hard but like it might be more valuable than the postmodern condition in terms of like voice forward true story so but yeah it's gonna be not dinosaurs though (laughs) on that note thanks for listening Methodologically and epidemiologically, uh, epidemiologically now. Wow, <laughs> that one's going in the outro or in the bloopers. Whoa! Hey, in terms disease. of the transmission of disease, uh, methodologically and epistemologically, methodolog. I'm gonna get there. <laughs> right, theoretically, and but in the pre-mash, pre- in the pre-mash, in the pre-mash,
and here I just slightly dispute Stephen's claim that this is totally readable. This is readable by contrast with other French philosophers, but That's when you hear argument. the rest of the sentence, well, 